Welcome to another episode of the EvokeCast. Today, I'm going to be talking with Evoke coach and a climber extraordinaire, Dave Thompson. And Dave has just authored an article for our website about training for rock climbing. And I think it will be quite a unique approach that different than what most people um, think about when they start talking about training for rock climbing. You know, the, the internet is full of information about how to train for climbing. And, you know, there's, there's a good deal of it that I think is very good, but Dave's taken a slightly different approach, which I think will interest people who like us like to think outside the box a little bit when we start talking about training for for anything and you know using some uh principles that we've pulled from other sports so um that's probably all i want to say about that but welcome dave um, thanks for taking the time uh, hey scott thank you yeah yeah it's been a long process of getting this thing published but i'm pretty happy with how it's turned out yeah, and and so we'll put a link in the the show notes to the article on the, the website, the post on the website. But it'll be one of the more recent ones um, right now. What's our? You know, we're in the late February, twentieth of February now, twenty first of February. So sometime around you know in the next week or so, it will go live. Now, the thing that interests me, and of course it it uh, jives right along with kind of my general approach approach to training, which is why I'm sort of favorably disposed to the approach you took to the to training for climbing but is that you've you've started with first principles which I always feel is a great place to start with rather than you know jumping in midstream and just assuming prior knowledge that people have or that everybody's at the same level or that they fully understand the underlying uh, principles of training and also the physiological responses and all that. You know, you've much like I've tried to do in most of my writing with about endurance training is I've tried to go back to, and start with some pretty basic first principles that are not, you know, they're not difficult to grasp. And and you've done that very well here. So, um, and that's one of the things I want to ask you about. One of the one I want to start with is that what you've done which i also really appreciate is you've you're using some models to try to explain how this how how training works and give me your thoughts on why you like to use that approach the, the starting with models and first principles but yeah starting with models i guess first well there there are things about physiology and neurology that are the case for everyone and we're just basically using those and applying them and filtering them for the specific demands of climbing or or running or you know things like that in case in this case rock climbing beyond that you know it's it's hard to argue with there not being a necessity for consistent consistency gradualness and modulation yeah and i and i think that you know for me one of the appealing things with you know using models about talking about training is that these you know our physiological organism is phenomenally complex and if we <clears throat> if we start trying to look at it in in detail it's pretty easy to get mired in the forest you know and lose sight of the trees basically because they're you you don't know where 
to start, where to stop. And when I think when we use models, we're, you know, physics uses models and a lot of, um, you know, economics uses models. And the reason they do that is they're dealing with pretty complex systems themselves. And those complex systems, if we can break them down into some more fundamental components and think about them in a um, perhaps less than perfect way, we can help us grasp how things are working. We don't need like, you know, we've, you know, I'll, I'll just throw out one, I mean, my, one of my favorite models is the whole vacuum cleaner anal analogy with aerobic base training. Well, certainly, you know, the vacuum cleaner analogy for why aerobic base is so important for any kind of endurance activity, even rock climbing, as, as a matter of fact, is it's not perfectly represented by that vacuum cleaner analogy because it, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, subtlety and, you know, in some, you know, we're making some sort of gross generalizations when we describe the aerobic system as a vacuum cleaner for lactate, but it gets a point across and it's com comprehensible by people who don't have, you know, a biochemistry background, which by the way you do. But um, so I've always been, a, I've always a, like the idea of trying to you know, use analogous or metaphor or models to help people grasp more complex subjects. And, and especially when we, you and I today get into that discussion about skill acquisition, I think you're, the way you've, the model you've developed there for skill acquisition is a perfect example. I mean, it's, it's the same general idea as the vacuum cleaner analogy, you know, not, not physiologically describing the same thing, of course, but using, you know, making simplifications that are, yeah, that those categories that you break down in skill acquisition are not, you know, they're not hard and fast, easily defined, but the good general concepts are, I think, accessible to people when you break them down that way. Mm -hmm. So I look forward to discussing that part of it. Um, but why don't we take a look at these overarching training principles that, because I think that's a, a really, you know, it's a great place to start, you know, like let's discuss where, what are these overarching or very fundamental principles that somebody needs to engage in when they're training, doesn't matter what they're training for. Um, and can you kind of give us an outline of, of what those are? Well, yeah, like I was saying, um, consistency, gradualness, and modulation. So um, you have to be consistent with your training. So if you uh, if you want to train for rock climbing and you only go rock climbing once a week um, and your goal is a specific grade or something like that, then um, the likelihood that you will get there just climbing one day a week if you don't have uh, – the climbing skills and things like that that are developed and you you can do all sorts of strength training and or or you know things that are less specific to rock climbing and you really can't expect yourself to get there you know in 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 terms of gradualness i think about that more as something where you're you're progressively overloading but you're so you're doing more more weight more distance, things like that. But with the with the caveat of modulation 
from day to day and week to week. And, you know, I, I think often people want to just have like super compensation of their own will and the body doesn't really work like that. So, so modulation from day to day and week to week is key, you know, just depending on how you're performing. Um, and a lot of that comes from, you know, it, from, from the perspective of the sports that we like to do um, just from a, a consistent and gradual base. Uh, and when the base in terms of rock climbing, the base could be a lot of things. So it could be endurance, skill development, strength, things like that is just like what, like how robustly and how often can you perform these things that are applicable to the skill of rock climbing? Yeah, that the gradualness part, I think is quite interesting that, you know, one of the things we we know quite well, and, and I think many of us have experienced this, is that our body doesn't like to be shocked with, you know, training loads that are outside of, or, or very far beyond what it has become accustomed to. And in fact, it'll sometimes rebel and, you know, we'll get either in, in the worst case, we might get injured or overtrained. Um, but, it, and, you know, in the better case, we might just get a severe case of, you know, delayed onset muscle soreness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, that being gradually increasing the training load is really a key component for folks. And that, you know, when you have consistency and gradualness linked together, you know, that's the, you know, obviously modulation has to come into play too. You need some time to recover and let your body adapt. But I, I really think one of the things that most people, those two, those two things being consistent and gradually increasing the training load over time as your body becomes adjusted to it rather than, you know, kind of training randomly, which is inconsistently and training at, you know, far in excess of what your capacity for that, whatever the type of training is. Uh, to me, those seem, you know, certainly in the endurance world, and I can imagine, you know, what little I know about rock climbing training, um, that that's probably similar. Those are the two things that people get wrong the most. I think the, the there's this story in Greek mythology about uh, Minos. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Minos in the bowl, and uh, he mm. he picks up the bowl from the time it was a calf to uh, it being an adult. He or it being a full size bull, and he grew with it. And you know that's just kind of like a perfect metaphor for gradualness. And you know we know that it doesn't exactly work that way, but still, you know, as a, as kind of a model, I, I think it, it holds, you know, particularly for the types of things that we all like to do here. Yeah. Yeah, it does. In fact, you know, I used to think that was completely apocryphal, but then I actually stumbled upon, you know, the internet is full of so much crazy stuff. Some Eastern European guy in the 19th century who did essentially that um you know i think it was with a horse though and not a not a full-size horse but a but he started he picked this horse up and would carry it around when it when it was young and the the, there was a, a very grainy you know 19th century late 19th century photograph of him actually carrying this horse on his back within about knee deep water and I thought, oh my God, it's it maybe the the Minos story isn't completely apocryphal. Um, 
Nice. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. I can't remember where I saw it. You know, it's like a lot of things on the internet. You see it and then don't go back to it. Um, well, you know, this going to the stepping or moving forward just a little bit, the, another thing I'm uh, appreciative of, and that you, that I think you've done really well here that, you know, we tried to do with our, our endurance training as well is to you know, look at what, what are the, fundamental qualities that are involved in rock climbing and kind of isolate them. And once again, this is a, a model construct that's not 100% accurate. I mean, the, you know, we can't exactly separate skills from strength and, you know, that kind of thing. But tell us a little bit about how you've categorized these fundamental qualities and, and why you arrived at them that way. Uh, yeah, so with what's written there, I approached it like a flow chart of sorts. Um, so you you start with skills. Um, it, skills at climbing demand all of these other fundamental qualities. Um, you know, the, so so we're saying skills, active range of motion, core strength and stability, your strength and power, and your endurance and or endurance capacity. So so if you if you start with skills and you know make it kind of a, a flow chart you're starting with skills your active range of motion or lack thereof is a constraint on your skill development your core and your strength stability or lack thereof constrains your active range of motion your strength and your power are constrained by your active range of motion and your core strength and your endurance and or your endurance capacity is constrained by all of the above yeah, that's a great that's a great approach. I, I really like that. It resonates with me, um, and I think it will for a lot of folks. Uh, and so, do, let me see if I can summarize that. You, you've taken the act of rock climbing, and you've broken it into these what's that four or five uh, fundamental qualities, with, on all of which really interact with one another but can be separated into these general categories, then when those are trained to a high level and you bring them together, you'll perform at your peak. I would assume that's kind of the theory behind it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, with the degree of skill development that's necessary for climbing, uh, and we will get into this later, but it doesn't really matter if you see someone on the internet doing some crazy thing. And I would recommend that you don't automatically think, Oh, well, if I could just do that, I could, you know, climb as hard as that person or, or whatever. But the main thing would be having an understanding of what your current skills are. And then using something like a proxy of like a, a specific goal you have or a, a specific grade that you'd like to climb and then breaking the components of those things down into something that that you could you could work on a lot of the elements separately and, and is and that then, a, that's a oh excuse me go ahead and finish uh, i was just going to say and then then you bring it all together ultimately yeah i mean i think that's a i mean that's a proven um <clears throat> training principle from that we've learned from you know traditional any kind of traditional sport is that we train these fundamental qualities 
in isolation. And once again, it's not perfect isolation. I mean, when you train skills, you're also training some of these other things. When you train, you know, flexibility and active range of motion and strength and power, you're also training some of these other qualities. So we can't, you know, this is where the model isn't a perfect representation of the physical reality, but it helps us uh, understand these, these kind of concepts. And this is something that, you know, traditional sports do quite well <clears throat> in coaching and they will bring <clears throat> train these qualities as much as possible in isolation. And the reason that they like to do that is you know, there's, a, well, I know this is a kind of a pet peeve of yours, so I'm going to say it. The focus of climbing training on the internet seems to be kind of monodirectional towards finger strength, mm -hmm. which obviously is a very important quality for climbers. But, and that's one of these fundamental qualities, but there's not a lot of discussion about these other fundamental qualities that make up being, you know, a good climber. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that this approach you've done where we're trying to break this down into some bite-sized pieces can help people because if you're, you can have the strongest fingers in the world, but if you have very poor range of motion or, you know, you know especially strength at the your extreme ranges of your range of motion then you know you're you're going to be hindered more by that um deficit than you're going to be benefited by the strong fingers would you say that i'm generally on track with that yeah yeah absolutely i think also to that point when you look at some of the people who are at the top right now when they go and do these kind of standardized finger training or finger strength measurements and things like that they're they're often just sort of average um you know in the in, you know so you, people like adamandra or or something like that um and you know the these are the types of things that i was hoping to just frame in this article of like okay well yes finger strength is important but like what else you know what what else the, your your hands are a very small part of your body volume wise and what else should you consider in the arc of your development yeah you know and climbing is such a complex sport um because of the variety of movements that are involved and all of these fundamental qualities that need to come together and 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 be optimized before you bring them together and if one of them is you know it's a little bit like fundamental qualities in endurance training you know if any one of them is deficient then that is going to be your limitation and so it's nice to be able to identify okay what is my limitation or what are my limitations and then direct your training towards that. Um, and I think for many of us, we like to train things we're good at. And so we'll gravitate towards just, you know, doing the stuff we're good at a lot and forgetting about, or just, you know, not focusing on, um, you know, our debt, the deficits that we have. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think if you know what you're bad at and you know, the path to not continuing to be bad at that, then it becomes fun. Yeah, and, seeing improvement. It's easier to improve at things you're you're terrible at than it is to improve at things you're already pretty good at. But if you're terrible at it, then um you're for most people, they'll get better at it a lot quicker than they will get 
better at the things that they're already good at. Uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like really nice. It's nice, positive feedback to see improvement. Mm -hmm. Um, all right. So you've identified these five fundamental qualities, which as we've said, are you know, actually dependent on one another. And, you know, they're not exactly um, easily identified separate, but we we're doing this again, using a model where we will um, try to identify these things, even though skills kind of roll into range of motion and that sort of thing. But when we start talking about these physiological, another physiological model, the the ability to recruit um, motor units and muscle to do things, you've really brought up, I think, a, an, an interesting concept that I'm uh, a real fan of, a way to look at uh, muscle recruitment, because you know, it's the ability of our nervous system to recruit muscles in a very complex way, both the order in which things are, are recruited and the level to which they get recruited um, in order to, to produce the kinds of movements that we're looking for in whatever sport, with everything from walking to you know, something as complicated as climbing. So why don't you walk us through that those concepts? I think they're really an interesting way of looking at this stuff. Yeah, sure. So the way that i the way that i frame this i like full full disclosure i mean i i don't know you know when when you look at information on uh if you google th uh, threshold of excitation for instance um it, it goes very in depth into neurobiology and things like that 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 was actually my major and so i i had a lot of exposure to the mechanistically the way that the the nervous system works and and i was just trying to think of a way to present physiologically or neurologically how movements get easier in the body so if, if you have a an activity like walking it, all of us most of us can walk uh, quite easily and so the the mus the muscles in the neural components involved with that uh, require a very low threshold of excitation for that movement to occur and and it's actually a very complex phenomenon you know you you have to stay balanced um you, you know you have to there has has to be things in the nervous system that uh, that allow you to do walk over variable terrain um all of those things and so you know as as something to contrast that with uh, a movement for most people like that has a high threshold of excitation. I, I use the example in the article of doing a one-arm pull-up, you know, for most people, it's not, it's not that easy and it, you know, takes quite a bit of training, but thinking about what you're doing in your training to be able to do something like that, like a one-arm pull-up consistently, you're basically making the signal more robust for that movement and you know, all, all sorts of, uh, fast twitch and slow twitch muscle physiology aside, like the, the, what, what you're trying to do almost like subjectively is like, make that, make that feel easy. And that comes with, you know, repeated attempts at doing it. And, you know, again, breaking that down into what it's fundamental components are and things like that. And then, you know, ultimately, it's just something that you can do and it's, it's not particularly hard anymore. 
And I would say those two examples are kind of at opposite ends of the difficulty scale for most of us. You know, the one arm pull up is out of reach for you know probably ninety nine percent of humans, but uh, obviously a lot of good climbers can do that. Um, and so most of this these uh, climbing movements would exist somewhere in the continuum between these two extremes in terms of the level of excitation. But I, I think I'm pretty sure I understand what you're saying is that through through repetition and um, you know we're developing the skills to there at one point for all of us, walking would was just as difficult as a one arm pull up. Mm -hmm. because we had to learn the complex complex movements of of walking like you said balancing and shifting your weight from you know one foot to the other and coordinating you know, a lot of muscle mass in fact so it took a lot of mental effort and we all fell over a lot of times trying to learn that um and i think that that would go along with let's say more a more modest um a more modest goal of, you know, maybe it's, you know, com completing some other kind of climbing movement that's maybe very climbing specific um, that we have to learn through repetition. Um, and in this whole idea of muscle recruitment and gaining strength, obviously it takes a great deal of strength to do a one-arm pull-up. However, if you, when, when I look at the physique of most climbers, I don't see them as having particularly bulky upper bodies. There's not a lot of upper body muscle mass on most climbers. Obviously, you know it's beneficial to have a high power or high strength to weight ratio for climbers. And I would bet you there are probably very few bodybuilders that can do a one-arm pull-up because they have a poor strength to weight ratio. But I think what this tells me is that rather than gaining muscle mass in order to become stronger at you know something like a one arm pull up or even something that's more climbing specific we're not really our strength training isn't designed to gain muscle mass our strength training is designed to maximize the recruitment of existing muscles would you say that's a fair explanation yeah absolutely what ends up being true is that you can get stronger you know but particularly for these types of activities where it's um it's relative strength versus absolute strength um without putting on much more appreciable muscle mass you know after you're you know 20 in your 20s or or something like that and you know it's it, even to the point where it's not going to help you so so you know you think about okay well what's what's going on if uh if this is widely the case with rock climbers I do think that, you know, again, there's this there's this neural component of you're lowering the threshold at which both of your both your slow twitch and your fast twitch muscles contribute to a movement. And that's the basis for skill development in and of itself when when you're putting that to the act of climbing. Um, you know, that probably another reason for the lack of uh lack of like really bulky muscle development is I would think like fascia and and tendon tendon strength and soft tissue robustness and things like that where you know the, the there's a, a your the muscle bellies may not be that big but the like the the stiffness and the 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 elasticity of your other tissues are quite 
adapted to the forces that you're putting on them. Yeah. And, and this goes, you know, I've often said, and I know you and I've talked a great deal about this, that, you know, strength is really a neurologic effect. And, um, you know, we're basically training the nervous system to get better, as you said, lower the excitation level that is required to recruit your existing muscle mass, and or you know maybe you add a little bit of muscle mass, but it's not the goal of strength training <clears throat> for everyone but a body. You know, for athletes, the goal of strength training is to gain gain strength without adding mass, because if you have to move your mass around, um, then you maybe either you may completely offset any gains uh, in strength you get from increasing muscle size by the added weight. In fact, it may even make you go backwards. Like I said, I doubt if there's many power lifters or bodybuilders that can do a one-arm pull-up. So they've mm -hmm. kind of lost that ability. And so I think this, this focus on the nervous system, both as a strength development, but as you pointed out, it's this is where the model are kind of the fact that we've you have broken down strength and skills into different categories, but in fact, there's a great deal of overlap here. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah they I, go I, hand I, in hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think you know I've heard other people say strength is a skill. Um, yeah, that's and a good point. Yeah. So so yeah, I mean it it when you when you kind of get down into the weeds of of climbing movement um if you think about it like okay well uh i i'm really really good at doing deadlifts i can deadlift you know two and a half times my body weight but does that skill how much of that skill does apply to how well i move on the wall yeah that and that begs that age-old question that you know i've talked about a lot in the past is <clears throat> how much does how much at what point does gaining more general strength stop benefiting an athletic performance you know and, and i don't think there's a good answer for that obviously if a person can't deadlift their own body weight then probably have pretty low general strength it's like if you can't do one pull-up you probably have you know you would probably benefit from increasing that kind of general strength but does it benefit you very much to go from, you know, let's say being able to deadlift, you know, less than your own body weight to then being able to, you know, or moving, let's say from being able to deadlift twice your body weight to two and a half times your body weight, is that going to benefit your athletic performance? Unless your sport is deadlifting, probably not. Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, there's been tons of articles written about this and I've never found one that's conclusive about any sport that says how much general strength is beneficial for, you know, the spe specific athletic performance. So this is a, yeah, it's another good example of that. Um, yeah. The de that deadlift, because I know that seems to be all kind of a rage these days is to get climbers to do heavy deadlifts. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that there's probably people who would certainly benefit from it. To me, there are other types of movements that are a little bit more specific to climbing that would probably do just the same thing if you're talking about the goal being skill development like i probably like kettlebell swings and hip hinges and things like that might might do a, a bit better in terms of like explosiveness um where you know the the deadlift is not 
it's it's generally a slow exercise, even though you're trying to move the weight as fast as possible. And I, th I think I I could be wrong about this, but my interpretation of this sort of deadlift fad for climbers has been that you know basically is recruiting you know almost your entire muscle mass to lift mm -hmm. this weight, and so it seemed to me like okay the, I get the idea there. They're trying to train our nervous system to recruit a huge, you know, maximum amount of muscle mass. But why couldn't we do that with a more climbing specific movement, like, you know, a front lever, mm -hmm. you know, which is similarly going to recruit, you know, most of your muscle mass or, you know, an L sit, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, those are general exercises that, you know, basically maximally recruit all your muscles, but I would think that they are much more transferable over to climbing than mm. a deadlift. Um, so, but that's my theory. And what do I know about rock climbing? <laughs> well, it, when I, when I work with folks, I will give them kind of depending on what their level is and, you know, where they're at, I'll, I'll give them ways of climbing where you can recruit a lot of the muscle mass in your body just by the just by nature of what you're doing or what you're trying to do um and you know in in my mind that's it, it's hard to argue with that being less uh specific than than uh than doing something like a deadlift if you're able to recruit those muscles so like uh, a different scenario though would be like if you're if a lot of your muscle fibers are asleep then and, you know, deadlifting is something that's relatively easy to do. It's a simple movement. And if it does the trick of recruiting a ton of muscle mass, then I would say go for it. Yeah. But bring it onto the wall as quickly as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, one of the things that another thing I really enjoy about this article is that you have you've, you've laid that groundwork by talking about this, this uh, levels of excitation. And you've done that as a kind of a, a preface to talking about how to develop skills, how to, how to create better habits. So why don't we like talk about some of these learning models that you've, cause you've done a really good job, I think of building this um, model idea into a, uh, you know, this skill development as well. I framed it as what are the steps in which skills are developed um and so it it would be called uh, a conscious habit formation um by this it's my intention to attempt to put into words what all of the information about climbing is sort of trying to elicit with all of the youtube videos and and things like that where you know people are like oh well, i did this exercise or i hung one armed off this size edge with this much weight or whatever and you know uh, that did such and such for me so i i kind of inverted it in a way and took it how do we gain better skills uh, you know ultimately we want to be better at moving on the wall how you get better at moving on the wall is understanding why you're not basically and so mm -hmm. So if, if you can sort of apply these steps to your encounter with either a specific route or climbing in general, then it can give you some good ideas about how to train, like how to train a specific skill at the edge of your ability 
something at the edge of your ability could be your ability to do a specific movement, or it could be like your ability to climb continuously for 45 minutes if that's required for a route that you want to get on or something like that. And so the four stages just kind of succinctly are uh, stage one is uh, you you don't know what you don't know. Um, so you you kind of have very little knowledge about what it is you're trying to do. So like, you know, maybe you have a route in mind and, and you, but you've never tried it. You, you have some like intellectual understanding and, you know, some watching of other people do it. And then from an experiential standpoint, you're, you're complete beginner on this particular route. And then, you know, you try it once um, and you're like, oh, well, this is hard. That's hard. I don't quite understand that. At that point, you're beginning to know what you don't know or identify some skills or some capacity that you need to work on, which is the next step you actively work on, like what you'd like to know or the skill that you would like to build. And then with repeated activity, working on these specific things, and there's there's a point at which you no longer have to really think about what you're doing and your body more or less does it like like walking like we don't have to think about all of the the recruitments necessary for walking because we could do it and that's how skill becomes more or less automatic in the big scheme of things how i how i frame the four stages of conscious habit formation i gave them names again it's moving from a very profound level of not understanding to mastery and just how that process happens, even perceptively, how your perceptions change with understanding what you know and what you don't know. And so with the four stages of conscious habit formation, as I wrote them, um, I just took the process of how, how it is that you gain a skill and what perceptively happens during those stages and you know of course to your point um these are very simplified and, and there's there could be um even thousands of steps in between moving between the steps so you know from step one to step two there would be step uh 1.1 1.2 1 1.3 and on so on but stage one would be unconsciously unskilled so you have a low skill in some areas and a low awareness of what this lack of skill is. So therefore you don't know what you don't know. Uh, and, you know, you can kind of bring that back to the baby learning to walk, you know, it's like trial and error. Um, stage two would be consciously unskilled. You have low skills, but are aware of the fact and consciously working to acquire these skills. Uh, and so in that, th that's kind of the, first stage of when you can interject in in what it is you're trying to learn because you know what you don't know. The stage three would be consciously skilled. So you would have a you'd have higher skills, but you're you're working on what your limitations are on a given day or for a given bout of training and you're really aiming to improve them. So you're in a sense actively working to learn what you'd like to know. And then stage four would be unconsciously skilled. And at that stage, that's essentially the stage of mastery where you have 
high skills, but you don't necessarily need to think about them any longer because they're ingrained into your your body and they're part of your movement vocabulary at that point. And I would say an, an important thing to consider with this is that mastery, it precipitates out of working on those first three elements and kind of always being in that zone when you're training, when you're climbing, even, you know, when you're, when you're running, you know, working on, working on gait, working on um, efficiency, things like that. Um, You know, and in a sense, if you're able to understand where you're at in this process, then you can understand what it is you need to do. Yeah. I think the, the summary that you've put out here um, in that part of the article, I just want to read a quote from it because I think it really, first of all, I think that that four stages of um, skill development is really a valid approach. It's it's used in other areas besides just in rock climbing. But um, but one the, the quote that I think that really brings this all ties this all together is that this this process can be employed in all circumstances of training, practice, and physical development. And with proper use, it is a skeleton key that unlocks all doors. Armed with this, you can learn exactly what it is you need to do and clear your path to success. I think that's a, a great quote. Thanks for sticking that in there. Yeah, sure. Um, and the, I I mean that sincerely. Um, it It is a skeleton key in a sense, but you just have to stay interested in what it is that you need to work on, um, what like where you are in that process of skill development. Well, Dave, I think we've done you've done a fantastic job of giving people the theoretical background for how training works, how they should be thinking about it, how they can identify their own weaknesses. Um, this s- stages of skill development, I think, is a, a marvelous way of presenting you know this the big picture of of becoming a better climber. But I know you've put just as much effort into the whole second half of this article, which you and I, I are not going to walk through every single stage of here, but how would you summarize, you know, what we've, what would you, what you do in the second half? How do we, how are you helping people take this theoretical knowledge and, and use it in their own way? I suppose the easiest way to do it would be using things as simple as some performance guidelines can be helpful. And I included that as a table. If you want to think about climbing a specific grade consistently, how these different workouts that are outlined below fit into that. And if you want to climb 512, then there's a specific level at which you would focus your anaerobic training. So like doing more power endurance things, the, the level at which you can climb consistently, how hard you boulder, um, how hard of grades you would use to gain stamina and, and things like that. And, and so I gave a bunch of different categories, but they basically boil down to work capacity. So endurance, um, steady state type things, stamina, power endurance, specific strength and power, general strength and power. I did put hangboarding in there. Um, and, uh, and those are kind of the big ones that I hit on for like how to approach specific workouts. But, you know, all that said, it has to be 
align with like what your what your goals are and and the level of skill development that you're at. And one of the biggest mistakes that I see being made is people just like using grades as a proxy for their level of skill development. And that that can really cut the the arc of your skill development short because if you think about it if you're if you're say using indoor rock climbs like that are set commercially as a proxy for sort of where you're at or where you where you think you could be you have to realize well so these these commercial routes are made to be enjoyable and and they may not elicit the same type or they may not require the same types of skills that climbing the same grade on on rock would. And so I recommend you accumulate as big a breadth as possible on as many rock types and styles as possible. And, you know, don't don't restrict doing these sorts of things to just the gym. Yeah, I think but obviously gyms are where a lot of people are and there's people who even we've known some who don't even climb outdoors. So there is something for that, I guess. But um, but the thing, thing that really appealed to me about the way you've laid out this whole second half of this article, which is that you've given some specifics, you know, it's often people struggle, I think, to take, and this was something I had to learn when I was beginning to try to explain to people how to train for endurance, was how to take the theory and put it into practice. And I believe that what you've done so um, excellently in this article is that you've made the, you've built the, your theoretical case for why we should be doing these things. And then you pull that up together and you actually show people, okay, here's the kinds of workouts that you could go and do that will help you develop these different qualities. And I think that's a really, it's a great way to, to, um, you've, you've made a good case now. Okay. Somebody comes to you and says, okay, great. I understand the theory, Dave. What do I do? How do I get better? And you've built all or laid out all these different kinds of, of workouts in there, which I think is, is really beneficial and, um, helps someone like me who would be struggling with certain aspects of my own climbing and say, okay, these are the thing, this is some area that I could be working on. So that's a, a, a great way to that you've pulled all this together at the end. I appreciate it. Well, well, Dave, I really appreciate your coming on and walking us through your article. I think it's it's a novel approach. I certainly haven't seen this approach taken um, by anyone else that I've seen writing about rock climbing. And so I really appreciate that, a new way of, of examining it. Um, you know, this is such a complex sport and there's a lot of nuance and subtlety involved in it. And I think, you know, a lot of climbing, we try to quantify it, whether it's, you know, by, you know, how how long you can hang on what size edge or what grade you climb at. But there it's it's much more subtle than that. And which I think is a lot of the appeal for people is it it's it it isn't easily quantifiable but yet we as people are trying to do that to um we like to put things in boxes and and uh categorize them and that sort of thing um but i encourage folks to come and take a look and read this article there's a tremendous amount of information in it um it's one of our maybe it's the longest article on our website so be prepared to spend a little time on it when you do thanks again dave do you have any you know closing words any 
final thoughts on what we've been talking about? My intention for writing this in this way was to try to say the things that I think a lot of other people are hinting at or implying, but to just put it out there in written form. So all of the information on YouTube, you know, just thinking about it is like, ultimately, what are you trying to do? And then giving folks a way to approach actually doing that, you know, goes beyond these like specific exercises and things like that. Yeah, that's yeah, I, that's what I think you've done a good job of. And well, you know, with that, the first half of the article being the theory and the second half of the article being the application of that theory. So, well, I hope folks find that useful. And um, if I know that Dave will be, is always happy to answer questions. You can write in on the forum um, to ask questions about rock climbing training. You can um, reach Dave at Dave at evokeendurance.com. Uh, you'll, you'll be able once this article is posted, you'll be able to make comments on it. And um, we get notifications when those comments come in. So we'll be able to uh, you know, jump on that and you know reply to comments and questions that show up on the article themselves. So um, well, good luck with that to everyone for their in their rock climbing training. And uh, thanks again, Dave. It's really good to have a chat with you about this. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. It was great chatting.